Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 11 a.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. We are in the middle of our summer series, which is called Life in the Tension, where we are exploring the idea of what it means to share our faith. The theological word is apologetics. It's this idea of being able to give a defense for the hope that resides inside of us. And we know that this is difficult when we live in a day and age where we feel like our Christian faith and our Christian beliefs are constantly under attack. And it's really easy for us sometimes to to try to fight fire with fire, to, to try to raise our voices because we believe in it so much and yet we feel like we are attacked. And so what we've been wanting to focus on this summer is the tone in which we are to carry ourselves. The scriptures clearly call for us to give an answer for why we have hope in Jesus, why we believe in the gospel, but to do that with gentleness and respect. And so as we've invited some guest speakers this summer to come and help us in this series on apologetics and how we can better share our faith with a dying and broken world, uh, we've been looking for men who can not only preach the word, but who model this tone in their everyday life. And I'm very excited this morning to welcome to you, Salem Heights Church, Dr. Layton Flowers. He is a director of evangelism and apologetics for Texas Baptist, an organization down in the state of Texas that helps churches. And he goes around and he specializes in doing seminars and trainings on the areas of evangelism and apologetics. He's also an adjunct professor of theology at Trinity Seminary. And I've just come to really appreciate his ministry from afar. So will you welcome Dr. Layton Flowers. Let's pray for him. Father God, we just thank you for bringing Leighton out to Oregon. We pray this morning now that you'd give him clarity as he brings a message to us on how to share our faith with others. God, let it be encouraging, convicting, inspiring. Do with it what you will in our hearts and our lives. We pray this now in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Wow. I don't know if you know how blessed you are with this praise team. I I mean, wow. And go back and listen to my messages at other churches. I don't say that everywhere. Um, I, I, I travel for a living and preach in churches in the Bible Belt where there's a lot of money for churches. And this is absolutely all the instruments it was just, and you, you all sing. Um, it's almost like God's changed your lives or something. Like, wow. I love it. I just love, I love being in a family where I can see God at work. And I think some of that's getting to know Matt and hearing some of the stories, some of the awesome stories and testimonies and getting to know a little bit more about Justin, your pastor and his story and his life. Um, I already feel just a kindred connection to this fellowship, and I, I just, I'm honored. I really am honored to be here, and I, I just really appreciate this invitation. Um, as you may have gathered, I, I'm a bit of a church brat. Uh, I've raised, as the proverbial statement, I was born on a pew, kind of, a, I'm a church brat. Um, how many other church brats? You admit it, you, kind of slowly, hands up, yeah, a few of you. You can pick us out. You know, if you've ever been thumped on the back of the head for snoring during a prayer, you might be a church brat. Have you ever made change in the offering plate so you could buy a soda in the soda machine? You might be a church brat. If you think the only way to solve a problem is by forming a committee, you might be a church brat. That's probably more of a Baptist church brat, to be honest. Um, Committees are our thing. 
Um, you know, I, I raised in church a little bit worse than the average church brat because my dad, speaking of Father's Day, um, I, I, my mom and dad are still here and, and, and friends of mine and mentors in my life. And my dad was the youth pastor of the church I grew up in, so I'm a preacher's kid. A little worse than the average church brat because I was that little kid going to all the disciple nows and youth camps. Every youth event, I was there even as a little kid. I was kind of the mascot for all the high school boys that would carry me around on their shoulders and all the high school girls coming up and kissing me on the cheek and telling me how cute I was and having me sit on their lap during the worship service. It was, it was a tough life, y'all. Man, I, I would not trade my church upbringing for anything in the world. I loved church. I've always loved church, and that's largely due to my, my mom and dad and their influence in my life. Um, and because I'm raised in church, I have become very familiar with evangelism strategies. And those of us who've been in church for any length of time, you've probably learned different ways in which you could share your faith, maybe practicing your own testimony, uh, maybe learning how to do the bridge to life kind of track on the back of a napkin, um, maybe a one verse evangelism or evangelism explosion, or there's all kinds of strategies that have come through the church at different times at different places. And I'm not sure what this church has taught over the years, but I know if you've been in church any length of time, you've probably taught, been taught some kind of tool or methodology for sharing your faith. And I remember the question being asked a long time ago in a group, you know, which one is the best? And the answer came back, the one you're willing to use. In other words, God can use all kinds of methodologies, all kinds of tools, but which one are you willing to use? Which one are you willing to actually put into practice and to talk about? And there have been studies done. You can go to all the big Christian groups like Barna or Lifeway and their research policies and all the things they do to try to figure out which one of these methodologies is the most effective, which has the best outcomes. But I wanted to do something a little bit different today. I wanted to go another direction and ask, instead of asking the church experts what they think about our evangelism strategies and methodologies, instead go outside the church walls and say to the unchurched, to the lost in the world, what is it that you think about our evangelism strategies? And there was actually a study done asking unchurched people that very question. What do you think about Christians who evangelize and share their faith? What do you think about these things? And a overwhelming answer came back. It was in a lot of different forms, as you can imagine. People have different ways of verbalizing what they, they think. But there was an overwhelming theme, the number one response to that question what do the unchurched people think about our evangelism efforts? And that's this, your friendship is more important to me than your faith. Which is really just another way of saying they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. In other words, yeah, I understand Jesus is important to you, faith is important to you, and rightly so. I mean, it's your belief system. But I'm more concerned with what you think about me and how you love me more than what you think about God and eternity. That's pretty much what they're saying. And what does that mean? How, how does that help us as those who want to share our faith and we want people to know about Jesus because let's just be honest, what Jesus means and who Jesus is really is a lot more important than what I think about you or my friendship with you. We all know that because we're talking about eternal things here when we come comes to the relationship with Christ. But that's not the way they see it. They're, they're more concerned with the relationship that they have with you than they are a relationship they have with your God. 
And another interesting thing came out in that same survey. And I'll put it this way. If, if you could put Christianity on Amazon, many of you know Amazon well. We've gotten to know it really well, this five-star rating system. If you were to put Christianity on Amazon, it would maybe get a two-star rating from the unchurched. Even lower than Christianity would be evangelism. Wouldn't even get a full star rating, to be honest. Now, I don't know about you, but I have not bought many products on Amazon that get less than a two-star rating. But the unreached world, the unchurched world has a very, very low opinion of Christians and evangelism in general. Let's just be honest about that. And they may have a good point because sometimes the way we represent ourselves, especially in the public sphere, isn't all that good. Sometimes we do fail. Um, and our efforts to evangelize sometimes come across in a very negative light, more like a salesman pitch. And so these ratings, whether you like them or not, whether they're fair or not, this is just where we are in our culture today. There's another interesting point in this study. There was a kind of a light of good news, if you will, in this study. That when the name Jesus was plugged in there, it all came back with five-star ratings. In other words, Jesus still is seen with high admiration among the unchurched. Now, granted, they may have a lot of really weird views about who Jesus was or who he said he was and all those kinds of things, but the name of Jesus himself is still very well accepted, and people are willing to talk about Jesus. Now, that's important for us as a church to understand this. Because when we talk about sharing our faith, sharing Christ, evangelizing, doing apologetics, it must be centered around the person of Jesus Christ. So it's not about inviting people to a religion like Christianity or inviting people even to a place of gathering, a fellowship, all of which is still fine and good. Wonderful to invite people to church, obviously, to tell people about what you believe as a Christian. That's fine. But when it really comes to reaching somebody, it's about talking to them about who Jesus is. What did he say about himself? Who is he? How has he impacted your life? Because Jesus is the heart of what it means to evangelize. What it means to share our faith is really, it's all about sharing Jesus. And therefore, everything we do needs to center around Jesus and how he shared the truth as well. We can see a great example of this in a passage we're going to look at in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, if you've got a copy of the text, feel free to turn there or it'll be up on the screen as well. Beginning in verse 35. It says this, Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. Now, I want to pause there for just a second because I want you to notice a key point about how Jesus connects with the people of his time. Notice it says he goes to where they are. He goes to the, their towns, their villages, going to their places of worship, their synagogues. In other words, it's not just a come and see kind of a, a concept. It's a I'm going to intentionally go to where they are. That should be a lesson for us that we're called to go to where people are, and what also do we see Jesus doing when he gets there? 
He preaches the good news and he meets their needs, healing sicknesses. In other words, it's not just one or the other. Let me point that out for just a second because there's a lot of altruistic movements and groups out there who want to dig wells for people in impoverished lands and want to feed the the hungry and and help orphans and put shoes on the feet of people who don't have shoes. And all of them have great reasons for doing this. But what separates the church from all of those other movements and groups? We have the good news. Because it's not just about the souls on the bottom of their feet. It's about their souls. It's about eternity. It's about feeding not only their bellies, but their spirit. It's about bringing the truth. And notice that Jesus does both. He shows them how much he cares before he tells them how much he knows. And he knows a lot. He's the son of the living God. He has every right just to stand up and say, hey, you should listen to me because I'm the son of God. I don't need to meet your need. You should just listen to me because of who I am. He is, anybody has any right to be heard. It's the son of the living God. And yet he still takes the time to condescend to their level and to meet them at their point of need, to help them where they're hurting. He earns the right to be heard by meeting them at their point of need. Does that mark you? Does that mark this church? A church that's willing to go to where the people are hurting to meet their needs in order to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to them. That's the model that Christ gives us. Notice that once you meet those needs, that connection that you develop with that person grows into compassion, which is exactly what you see reflected in the very next verse, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had what? Compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Listen, having a compassionate heart means that we see others the way Jesus saw them, as lost, as lonely, but still loved. He had compassion for them. Now, this is where I have some trouble. I'll be honest with you. And I would suspect some of you do too, if you're honest with yourself. So I'm going to step on some toes right now, but Trust me, I've already stomped on my own toes preparing, okay? So I'm preaching with you, not at you when I say this. How many of you find yourself when you watch one of the 24-hour media, CNN, whatever it is, Fox News, whatever it is, and you see people acting the fool, standing up against what you value the most, fighting to change our culture and our nation, to devalue the things that we cherish, the things that we love, that anger and frustration builds up in you. Because I know it does me. In fact, I had, I had to take a fast away from the talking heads and the radio talk shows and all those kinds of things because I found myself just getting angrier and angrier and angrier with stupid people acting stupidly. <laughs> and, and, it's, and it's getting worse. It's like I, I could not... You, Go back two decades and tell that generation of people what's going to be happening in 2023. They would not believe you. No, that won't ever happen. You will never see that on on the internet. No, that would never happen. It's happening. You live in Oregon. You see it a lot more than I do in Texas. I mean, you know. It's all around you. 
I, I just coming here, driving in to town, I saw things I've never seen in Texas uh, on the street. I was like, wow, this is a different place. <laughs> Used to the Bible Belt, I've been protected. <laughs> things, are, thing, things have changed. But God had to get in my face at some point in my own development of sanctification and, and almost, um, God doesn't speak verbally to me. I'm a Baptist. I couldn't handle that. But, um, <laughs> but just impressing upon my heart, Leighton, why should it surprise you that lost people act lost? It, it, it's a symptom. It's, it's what it is. It's a symptom to a disease. Um, if you knew somebody who had cancer, start losing their hair and losing weight, would you get upset and angry with them or would you have compassion for them? Because they're showing symptoms to disease. When you see people acting the fool and, and doing things that are completely against everything that you value and you can't understand how they're thinking that way and why they're thinking that way, and you begin to see them with the eyes of Jesus, you begin to hurt for them instead of hate them. You begin to see them as, as exactly the way you would be if not for the grace of God in your own life. And you begin to hurt for them as ones who are lost like sheep without a shepherd. And instead of getting a bigger picket sign or getting that bigger, you know, Ichthus fish on the back of your bumper sticker that eats the Darwin fish that try to, you know, try to fight with them with different bumper sticker wars and, and different protests and lobbying and all the kinds of things that we, we oftentimes do as Christians. And instead of saying, I, I want to show them the love of Christ. I, I want to show them what it means to be changed and to understand what it means to be unconditionally loved. Notice this compassion that Jesus has for the lost is a reflection of who Jesus is. It's a reflection of the very nature of God. That he has compassion for people who are acting sinful. And you may, well, there's a lot of, sometimes I've heard, there's a lot of scripture passage where Jesus is angry, turns over the muddy change, yell, you know, call people brood of vipers. Yeah, look who he's talking to when he says that. He's talking to the quote unquote religious ones when he says those kinds of things. He's talking to the sticks in the mud who think they're self-righteous, who've got it all figured out when he says that. He's not talking to the, the wretched world of sinners that are lost like sheep without a shepherd who are living life in sin because they don't know who Jesus is. They don't know the truth. These are people who've known the truth for years and have rejected it and have grown stubborn and callous to it. And yes, God rebukes them more than any other people in the scriptures. That's because they knew the truth and closed their eyes to the truth and are now hardened and self-righteous in their callousness. So yeah, he does bring rebuke to them. And I think the church probably needs to sound that way when talking to those types. But when reaching the world of lost, Jesus shows compassion. He shows love he shows grace because he sees them as those who are lost like sheep without a shepherd. He truly has compassion for them. And this compassion will not come naturally. It comes through prayer. It comes from time and commitment and spending time to get to know people's story. Um, I know this is a silly illustration, but I, I can't help but share it because I, I'm a child of the 80s. I, I grew up in the 80s and I grew up on Star Wars. 
the, the original three, the good ones, you know. Um, I, I, I grew up loving to just hate Darth Vader. I mean, he's like the perfect bad guy. The black mass, the deep voice, breathes heavy, chokes people out with just his hand. I mean, he is absolutely the perfect villain. And he's easy to hate because he just looks and sounds like a villain with everything that he does. And then what happens to those of us who grew up in the 80s and we become adults and then what happens? The prequels come out and we hear the story of a little blonde-headed boy named Anakin Skywalker and we learn the story of how he loses his father and later his mother and the anger that builds up in his life and his whole story and you find yourself watching this movie and growing compassionate toward the Darth Lord, the villain that you once hated. What happens? Once you learn why somebody is who they are, why they're acting the way they're acting, what happens? Compassion begins to grow. Something begins to change within you because you take time to learn their stories. And it takes time to get to know someone's story, which is really a level of commitment. We see that in verse 37. He says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. In other words, he's comparing sharing Christ with being in the harvest field. Anybody who's done anything to do with the harvest or farming knows that is not easy work. This is not easy labor. This is commitment to the harvest field. And it takes work. It takes time. It takes investment to give yourself to this. Verse 38, ask the Lord of the harvest. It's prayer. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Prayer has to push our evangelism efforts. And if it's not pushing our evangelism efforts, then it will be out of the wrong motivations and it won't last. It'll always die back out. If you're only evangelizing because someone on the stage is trying to guilt you into evangelizing, it's not going to last that long. It might work for a season, but it'll end up leaving you dry and dead inside like the law always does. Rules do not motivate you to evangelize. A changed life motivates you to evangelize. When your life has been changed by something, go back to Amazon. You get a product that you just love. You don't have to get paid to tell people you like it. You just start talking about it because you really like it. The same thing happens when Christ changes your life and you see lives around you being changed by Christ on a regular basis. You don't have to get motivated to do evangelism. You just want to talk about him because you see the lives of others around you changing and your life has been changed by him. So you want to talk about him and that's motivated out of relationship with the father a communication with him on a regular basis. And that leads you to pray for the lost because you really believe that the lost can be saved. That genuinely, God wants them to be saved. Uh, you know, this being Father's Day, um, you know, I honor my father in a lot of different ways, but one of the ways I remember my father the most is hearing him preach. And, and I loved hearing my dad preach. And sometimes he would use me in his illustrations or my other brothers in his illustrations. And other times I would hear the same story more than once because that's what happens when you travel with your dad and hear him preach a few times. But there was one particular illustration that my dad used to tell that I always looked forward to. In fact, sometimes I would request it. Like when we were driving the car, I'd say, hey, dad, could you tell the story about Chucky Pool? I love that story. And he would say sometimes, you know, yeah, I can do that this time. And I just love this story, and it really stuck with me because it instilled within me the power of prayer. And I want to share with you that story because of how impactful it was to me growing up. Again, it's about a young boy 
a sixth or seventh grade, it was a promotion Sunday. So it was the, the year that they promote from the sixth grade up to the seventh grade youth department from the children's ministry to the youth ministry. And it's an exciting promotion Sunday. And my, my father was in the youth room with all the youth along with the new students that were promoting up. And he used this particular promotion Sunday to introduce to them the prayer target, which is this big archery target um, like the one here on the screen. And he said, here's what I want you to do. I want us to start in prayer ministry where we're praying for the lost. And he says, right now, there's someone passing out these map pens and all everybody got these little round map pens. And he said, what I want you to do is get one of these little map pens and I want you to write the initials of someone you know who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus just on one side of that little round map pen. And he said, on the other side, we want you to write in your full name so that we can see it. And what we want you to do is in a little bit, after we get done, we're going to let everybody come up to the, the target. And we want you on the outer blue ring, we want you to put your name facing out so that we can pray for you as you pray for the person represented on the back of that pen. And we'll pray for their salvation. And once that person hears the gospel, hears the message, we'll move that pin to the red ring there in the middle so that we, and that the gospel will um, begin to bring conviction to their life and life will begin to change. And then once that person prays to receive Christ, we want you to turn the map pen over and fill in their name and put it in that middle bullseye so we can celebrate with you all that God has done in bringing salvation to the lost. And so this was the prayer target. This was a prayer emphasis for the youth ministry. And he introduces it to the students. And then he asks the students, does anybody have someone you're praying for that you would want to share with us? And little Chucky Poole was on the front row being very excited to be in the youth department for the very first time. And he was the first to raise his hand. So my dad called upon him and he stood up and he turned around and he announced, would you all please pray for my father? He's an atheist. Now, my dad was fairly new to this church as the youth pastor slash choir director. And so he had heard some stories about some of the different families and the different people in the church. And he began to put two and two together and remember some of the stories. And he recognizes, oh, this is, this is little Chucky Poole, the oldest son of Dr. Charles Poole, who's the bank owner in town and also known infamously in the town, in this Bible Belt town, he's infamously known as the town atheist. And the reason he was known for that was because he was one of those angry kind of atheists that was always going to the public gatherings to try to get, you know, the nativity scene taken off the public lawn and, and try to keep Christianity out of the public sphere however he could. He was that kind of atheist, and especially in this small country, uh, you know, Bible Belt town. He was very well known, but also re re revered in one way because he was the bank owner, but also reviled in another because most of the people in town were churchgoers and didn't like the town atheists much. And my dad remembers thinking to himself, I, I, prayer ain't going to help that guy. He is so far out there. He is so angry. But little Chucky wanted to pray for his dad. He also remembered knowing that their, Chucky's mom was a faithful Christian and brought all three of the children to church religiously. And little Chucky was the oldest of the three. And so every time they got together, of course, there were prayer requests. And little Chucky was always the first to raise his hand to ask for prayer for his dad to come to know Jesus. In fact, it became so anticipated, my dad would oftentimes start the prayer time with, besides praying for Chucky's daddy, is there another prayer request in the room? It was just common practice. Everybody in that church knew that Chucky was always going to be praying for his dad. Well, years pass. That once sixth grade boy 
promoting up into the seventh grade, was now an 11th grader in high school. And it was youth choir night. I don't know if many of you are familiar with youth choir nights from the tradition of Southern Baptists in Texas, especially. Sunday night youth choir night was a really big deal back in the day. And this was one of those particular nights where the choir is directed and the, the, the youth ministry directs the entire worship service. And it was a big deal. Everybody would come out for it. As you can imagine, all the grandparents, aunts, and uncles would come because their kids were often performing and playing the music and singing. And so uh, the crowds were often very full. And this was that particular night. My dad, being the youth slash choir director, was taking the lead along with the choir loft full of students. And he took his spot in front of the choir uh, director's podium, and he motioned everybody to stand. And all of them stood except for one, sitting right over here. He notices and looking over, it's Chucky. He's just sitting there, staring. His face gone white, it's a ghost. Jaw dropped, just staring. My dad gets his attention, Chucky, Chucky, it's time to stand up. What's going on? And my dad kind of brings him to finally, and he looks at the back of the room, and he looks at my dad, and he says, my father's here. And my dad looks over his shoulder, and sure enough, Dr. Charles Poole, wearing a three-piece suit, had slipped in and sat on the back pew, presumably there to maybe support his son. Well, the service went on, the choir leads in the songs, and it came time for the sermon. And in Baptist tradition, y'all may not be familiar with this as, as well, there used to be these big throne-like chairs up on the stage. And my dad was sitting in one of these big throne chairs, you know, while the preacher preached. And it was a perfect perch, he said, to see this drama unfolding. Because he, he said, I could see the wife and the other kids over here sitting. I could see Chucky Poole up in the choir loft. And I could see Dr. Charles Poole on the back pew. And I could watch all of this unfolding as it was happening in life. And it came time for the invitation. And, of course, the youth choir is leading in the song, Just As I Am. And my dad took his spot as the choir director, had them all to stand and begin through the first verse of Just As I Am. And he said, I came to the second verse of Just As I Am, and just as we got done with the first line, he said, I had to back to the crowd so I couldn't see what was happening, but he says, I know that Dr. Charles Poole was walking the aisle because I could see, his, I could see it in the eyes of his son, now pulling with tears. And he said, by the time I turned around, Dr. Charles Poole was kneeling in the aisle praying to receive Christ with the pastor. And they came to the end of the song and the wife and the other kids had made their way over to embrace their father who is now a new believer in Christ. And at that time, they had one of those privacy rails there in front of the, the choir loft. And y'all, that didn't even slow Chucky down. <laughs> he hurtled that thing and ran down the middle of that aisle and embraced his dad. And you can imagine there wasn't a dry eye in the room. Because every single one of them had known that little Chucky, since he was a sixth grader, and even before that, had been praying for his daddy. The story gets better. Being the youth slash choir director is not the only job. Oftentimes, they are off a, a given the task of locking up after everything's done, which is what my dad was doing this evening. As the parking lot slowly emptied, people staying around celebrating, hugging, embracing, telling stories, as you can imagine, would be the case after a great night like that. And my dad thought everybody was gone. He made his way over to the youth building where his office was. The lights were turned out. He was putting some books in a bag and he heard a noise and he turns and his door is just open wide enough. He can see down the hallway where there's one, one security light still in the hallway that's still on. And it happens to be hanging over that old 
prayer target where they had hung it so everybody could see it as they walked by to pray for the lost. And there was a figure in front of that prayer target. He's about to step out to introduce himself or figure out what's going on and something just holds him back and he just watches. And he notices it's little Chucky, not so little anymore, standing in front of that prayer target. He doesn't know anybody's even watching. And he reaches up and grabs that old map pen, now yellowed with age, he just holds it for a few seconds and just looks at it. And he looks up and he says, God, thank you for saving my dad. And he reaches down and grabs one of the little golf pencils that were there. He fills in his father's name. He grabs it. He puts it right in the middle real hard. Like this. And he goes, yes! <laughs> and he turns and walks out. Never even knew somebody's watching. I always get emotional telling the story, sorry. Um, something about a dad's emotion, my dad would always cry telling the story too. And that's one of the reasons I think this story stuck with me. Daddies, don't be afraid to let your children see what makes you, what moves your heart. Um, and my dad said this, I'll never forget it. He said that night I teared up with everybody else, you know, in the room when Chucky's dad came to know Christ. I mean, that was a celebration. It was tears of joy. But he said, there in my office, he said, I fell on my face and I wept bitterly. And he said, the reason I wept bitterly is because I had forgotten the power of prayer. And it took a little sixth grade boy to teach me to never stop praying to never give up. And the reason that I still, decades later, tell that story is because everywhere I tell it, I have somebody come up to me and say, I'm still praying for my dad. I'm still praying for my mom. I'm still praying for my son or my daughter. And I'm here to tell you, don't give up. Keep praying. Keep praying, keep sharing, keep showing them that you love them, that you care for them through the actions and your words, but keep praying. Will you pray with me now? Father, I come before you and I thank you, God of heaven, the great I am, that you are also Abba. The great I am is Abba, Daddy. And that, Father, we can know you. And that, Father, represented in this room are a host of people connected with other people throughout this world who are lost like sheep without a shepherd some of which are hardened to the things of God, are running from God, are angry with God. And Father, there are people in this room who are the only light in their lives, possibly the only one who's still praying for them daily. And if nothing else, I pray that this morning is just an encouragement, a lifting up of them to say, don't stop praying. Don't give up. Don't stop sharing Jesus. 
And Father, I pray, God, that you will give us compassion for the lost. Help us not to see the way they're acting and just write them off as unsavable, as unreachable. But that, Father, when we see the ones who seem the most unable to be reached, the most hardened to the things of God, the most turned off, Father, help us, Father, to have even more compassion to run even harder after them, knowing that, Father, you sent your son to die for them, knowing that, Father, you want them saved. Teach us, Father, to trust you. Teach us, Father, to pray and to never, ever give up. In Jesus' name, amen.